0: Today, Dave Wurtson begins our study of the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth. This first century church faced a Roman society which thought they were incestuous, immoral cannibals. If you think you or your church is facing unprecedented problems, stay with us and consider the mess of Corinth. There's a real moral crisis in our country the world is sitting out there saying well see there's no difference in fact the world has been having a heyday of laughing at believers laughing at the problems they have reconfirming in their own minds you see there really isn't anything to this jesus stuff and possibly some of you as moms and dads are very discouraging and say what hope is there things have gotten so bad we were looking at some statistics yesterday the percentage of the traditional family what you think of the traditional family with a husband who works a mom who is raising kids at home less than six percent of our population now fits into that category the average child comes from a divorced home Alan Bloom in the Closing the American Mind describes how the normative student is a student that has no ties to their family because they had to learn from the time they were very young that you couldn't count on the ties of family. You couldn't count on mom and dad being there. So from the time that they were very small, because the home was so impermanent, it could so quickly end, they had to withdraw into themselves. They had to withdraw from others. And Alan Bloom says that's not the exception like it was just a few years ago in our society, but it has become the norm. The alienated, lonely student who doesn't want to enter into any deep commitments with anybody because everything is so impermanent. As soon as a relationship begins to task my own desires for self-fulfillment, as soon as there's an opportunity that I think might bring me greater meaning personally, then it's ax the old relationship, try to enter a new one. And so we live in a society where we can throw up our hand and say, where is it all going to end? Well, I find great comfort in the fact that as I study God's holy word, I realize that more than 2,000 years ago, they were wrestling with these problems and they found answers. And there were people of God back at the time of Christ and in the beginning of the church that were experiencing the same kind of challenges that you're facing. Let's suppose that this church was filled with angry jealous. I mean, there was a group that sat in this section. There was a group that sat in this section. There was a group that sat in this section. There was a group that sat in this section, and never would they switch groups. In other words, Jerry usually sits over here, but now he's sitting here. But in this church, they would never, never do that because this church had their own party spirit. This church had their party spirit. I'm not talking about partying spirit, but I'm talking about factions and anger and jealousy. And then just to stir the pie a little bit, let's suppose that we had somebody sitting with us that was living in an open relationship. Not a repentant relationship, not a relationship they were trying to hide, but they were just living openly with their mother in a sexual relationship. And they were right here with us this morning, gathered together. And let's suppose that the church was saying, That's great, it's a new lifestyle. It's a new way to look at things. You know, everybody has the right for self-determination. And yes, you know, ordinarily that would be wrong. But in this new age, living with your mother in a sexual relationship, there's nothing wrong with that. And then let's just stir it a little bit more. Let's suppose that there's lots of believers that are dividing for one another. In other words, lots of divorces and marriages that are taking place. Let's suppose that there's some other believers that have decided that sexual relationships is completely wrong. So in their marriages, they've stopped having sexual relationships. They've become ascetic. They've started having brother-sister relationships. To stir the pot a little bit more, let's suppose that there's a good portion of the church family that has stopped believing that Christ rose again from the dead. Let's suppose that in this church, when you go there, you find out that there's a major section that's decided that there's no resurrection. There's no bodily resurrection. They're not looking forward to resurrecting from the dead. The only thing that counts is a spiritual resurrection. Now, if you were in a church like that, what would you conclude about it? You would probably conclude this church has got problems. And that is an understatement. And I believe that there's some of you that are are being challenged by Satan to say there isn't any validity in this Jesus stuff look around at my believers every time that you all that have been married for a number of years see another marriage breakup you start to wonder maybe it can't work maybe it's an it's a fatalistic plague something new is happening in the world and this tide is rolling over me and i just can't really live for christ well what i want to share with you is that the church that i just described is the church that the apostle paul with pen and paper, or pen and parchment, or quill and parchment, sat down, and with his secretary, he began to write a letter. You see, the Apostle Paul in A.D. 51 came into a seaport town. The city of Corinth was probably about the third or fourth largest city in the empire. 250,000 free men supported by 400,000 slaves. A city of 650,000 people a big city. Paul came into this city, the reason it was so powerful is it sat on a little isthmus of land that guarded the highways, the sea lanes between the east and the west. And because of these two marvelous highways, these two marvelous seaports, this city sat perched with a marvelous fortification, a high acropolis that you could, called Corinth, that you could run into if you were invaded, And so when this city was refounded by Julius Caesar, just like that, the wealth of the Roman Greek world began to pour through the city of Corinth. When you have wealth, it attracts all different kinds of people. And so when we look at the ruins of Corinth today, we can label the temple to Asclepius, the god of healing. We can find another temple to Apollo. We can find a temple to Aphrodite. We even found the headpiece of a synagogue a synagogue of the Jews. And so we have this religious mix in this city of Jewish thought, of pagan Hellenistic thought. We have some of the occult thought from the East with all these people really going after the dollar. If you go to the Museum of Corinth today, you go into the museum and you can see a bunch of clay figurines of distorted male reproductive organs that are diseased. And it's a, it's a silent but very powerful testimony of the terrible vice of Corinth. Because in any seafaring town, and when there's wealth flowing, whether it's L.A., whether it's Houston, whether it's New York, when Mary and I have visited New York, it's not quite as much as what it was like when I was a kid, because the harbor of New York has fallen very much in disarray. But when I was a kid, you could go down on the the, looking toward the New Jersey side of Manhattan, and there, there was one after another piers, And just off those piers, you could walk down the streets of New York if you took your life in your own hands, and you'd see one prostitute after another. In fact, the last time I was in New York, in broad daylight, about 10 o'clock in the morning, we were down on that section, and you could see the prostitutes even at 10 o'clock in the morning. When we were in Recife, down in Brazil, just to switch countries, another harbor town, the same kind of thing. Corinth was that kind of a city. It was onto that stage, not onto a nice, quiet southern town where everybody believes in Christ and where nobody ever sins, where there's no problems at all. We're talking about walking out onto a, a platform that's loaded with vice, loaded with immorality, loaded with problems. And onto that stage in AD 51, the Apostle Paul came proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people responded. He had just come up from Athens, where people didn't respond very much at all. He was incredibly discouraged, but by a gift of the Spirit, he began to powerfully preach again. He began to powerfully declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the miracle of new life took place. And Paul was thrilled. He stayed there for a long period, over a year. And he was excited about this new family, this new group of believers. They were the most gifted group he'd ever worked with. The power of the Spirit came upon them. And they had more gifts, more manifestations of the Spirit than any of the other churches in some ways. And Paul rejoiced in that, but then he needed to leave. Things got hot and he needed to leave, although there was a declaration by Galileo, the Roman proconsul, that the gospel was legal which was a great boon for Paul's entire ministry. But he left and went on on his missionary journey. Apollos came and ministered to the church, and the church prospered and grew. The apostle Paul, meanwhile, went back to Jerusalem, made some contacts there, came back to the city of Ephesus, and when he got back to the city of Ephesus, he got some bad news. In just about three and a half, four years of time, the church had gone from being this tremendous encouragement to him this tremendous boon in his ministry, this tremendous gift from the Holy Spirit to becoming a church that was full of all the vices that I outlined to you just a few moments ago. Because what I did is just go right from chapter 4 and 5 into chapter 7, into chapter 11, on into the rest of the book, chapter 15, about the resurrection. I just went through the book and just summarized the kinds of problems that had begun to manifest themselves in this elite church. Now, why should we study the book? Because I believe that one of the greatest problems facing you and I as believers today is how to live pure in a cesspool. I believe that you could take that as the theme of the book of Corinthians. How to live pure in a cesspool. Corinth was a moral, spiritual cesspool. And yet the church was planted there. And the problem of Corinth, the problem as Paul began this letter was that the church was supposed to be in Corinth. The church was supposed to be a light shining in the midst of this darkness. But as Paul begins to write about A.D. 54, A.D. 55, there's a whole lot of Corinth in the church. In fact, in the ancient world, there was a proverb that says, there are few men, that should make the voyage to Corinth. And that setting of immorality, that setting of broken marriages, that setting of materialism has invaded the church. And so let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and let's begin wrestling with Paul on how to live pure in a cesspool. You moms and dads are all concerned, how can I raise my kids to be able to escape from these kind of vices? And Paul's gonna give us some answers. And I want to say to every mom and dad that you need to listen to the answers first before you can pass them on. You need to respond personally. As I teach you, it needs to not just be the words of the preacher, but you need to allow the words to become the words of your heart. Now, the Apostle Paul begins 1 Corinthians like he begins all of his letters with a brief introduction. In the ancient world, you had the, the from Paul to the destination you were writing, thanksgiving. You see, our convention of writing a letter is dear so-and-so. And I've often shared this with you. You write dear so-and-so, and then all of you have to flip through about four pages. If it's my oldest sister writing, you've got to flip through eight printed, typewritten pages. She ought to be a novelist. She writes just page after page after page. And so you have to flip through all of that stuff, and then you get love, Marianne. Oh, yeah, now I know who it's from. In the ancient world, they were much smarter than that. They started out with the, from the person writing the letter, right off the bat. So you didn't have to look anywhere. Right at the first thing, from so-and-so, to so-and-so, and and then they had a thanksgiving. And it wasn't just kind of some, you know, malarkey, you you know, something just made up, just some convention. They would say something very concrete and specific about what they were thankful for the people they were writing, what they were thankful for. Now, what the Apostle Paul does, this is a convention you can read, and you know, I've read other Greek letters that are not in the sacred scriptures, that are just regular secular letters like you and I would write. And this convention is followed out from the author to so-and-so with some thanksgiving, or also a prayer, a prayer like, for example, if it's in secular Greek thought, a prayer from the, for the gods to bring blessing. The Apostle Paul takes that convention though and in all of his letters he uses it to introduce to us very subtly some of the concerns of his heart. And so as we begin the introduction this week, right away we become alert to some of the foundational concerns that the Apostle Paul has for this Corinthian group of believers. And I think that because it's in the Holy Scriptures. They are the concerns that the Apostle Paul has for us. So we begin with this, verse 1. Paul called an Apostle, called to be an Apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. That's the from Paul section. Now that's part when your own Bible study, when you read that, you say, big deal, you know, what is all that about? One of the biggest problems facing the Corinthian church is that they're beginning to turn away from their founder. They're beginning to turn away from the Apostle Paul. They're beginning to doubt his credibility. They're beginning to doubt his authority. In the book of Galatians, like in the book of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul underscores at the very beginning of the letter that he is an apostle. And he does that in Galatians and in Corinthians for a very specific reason. In Galatians, the Galatian church is turning away from his authority and they're beginning to walk into legalism. The belief that you can achieve favor with God and intimacy with God and rightness with God through your own self effort by obeying rules and regulations. And they were turning away from the authority of Paul in the question of legalism. In Corinthians, the question is not legalism, but it's the question of license. False teaching is infiltrating this church and it's saying you're a believer. You're a new person in Christ. You're living already in the heavens. The physical body you have is therefore totally unimportant. Therefore, do whatever you want with it. If you want to indulge yourself sexually, that's fine. You're still a believer. Everything's fine. If you want to hurt your body, if you want to restrain it and do things that uh, destroy its appetites, go ahead. The Apostle Paul is dealing with that area of license, and a freewheeling kind of Christianity that says that ethics isn't important. And so the Paul begins his letter from the very beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, what is an apostle? We all know what an apostle is, but let's review. We're talking here about divine authority. We're talking about a man who was commissioned by God. In the New Testament, An apostle is not just the representative of someone, he's not just a sent one, but an apostle in the New Testament in its strict sense, the way Paul is using it here, an apostle is an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. He's an individual that can claim to have seen Christ directly with his eyes. And therefore, like if we think of a courtroom, we can call up to the front. I would like the Apostle Paul to come up on the witness stand. And I say to Paul, how do I know that what I read in the Bible is true? How do I know that I can trust in Jesus Christ? How can I know that will take me into heaven? And this man will say, you can know it because I saw him alive after the crucifixion. I actually witness. I am an eyewitness. Now, brothers and sisters, that's a very simple idea. But it needs to permeate your life. It needs to give you a hunger to enter into what I want to do the next few weeks as we study the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm very concerned for a lot of you because you have a hunger for a lot of other authorities. You have a hunger to learn a lot of other things. And I think it can be especially true if you're raised in a Christian home with so much availability of the Bible. If you had never heard of a book like our friend from India that was here. If you lived for many years without a book that told you the answer of life and death. That told you about how to be confident of eternal life. If you were raised in a culture where there really weren't any authoritative answers. And suddenly somebody came to you and says, I've got a book that will authoritatively tell you about God. It will teach you the way that he thinks, teach you the way that he feels, teach you the way he decides, teach you his will for you. If you hadn't been exposed to it, you'd be hungry for that as the Holy Spirit worked in your life. Just like our friend from India, as he gave his testimony and told about how he devoured when he got the Bible, he just read whole sections of it. But you see, as believers, we get used to having the Bible. Even preachers that have to study to get ready to teach get used to it. And therefore, there's not the wonder in it anymore. And so what do we do? We start looking for other authorities. And I want to share with you, every one of you, there's all kinds of authorities out there today. The day when the majority of Americans believed that Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ is past. For many people in our culture, as you go out this week, for many people... They could care less about what Paul says. When Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, when he says, I'm an eyewitness, I actually saw Jesus Christ alive, and therefore you should believe what I teach you about him, many people in our culture will say, who cares, I don't believe it anymore. That's just the old-time religion. It's not good enough for me anymore. Shirley MacLaine, in one bestseller after another, is pushing reincarnation. Ramesh said that the leading intellectual answer in the world for whether or not there's life after death and what happens next is reincarnation. Every one of you kids will be exposed to that as you go away to university, as you move out, you're gonna read it more and more in popular magazines. How do you know who do you believe? You see a lot of people are building their faith on Shirley MacLaine. She had a tremendous spiritual, mystical experience down in South America that just makes sense. You know, maybe there is reincarnation. And people are so hungry that there's all kinds of people out there, possibly some people that are right here. They're saying, yeah, you know, maybe there is. What's your authority? Who do you really believe? Who do you really read? And who do you think tells you the truth? From the bottom of my heart, I have chosen to live my life based upon the fact that Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ not by his own will not because he thought in his own mind yeah I think it's a good idea maybe there is reincarnation to me that's a very flimsy basis my faith is ultimately in Jesus Christ who said I am the way the truth and the life no man cometh to the Father but by me and in direct of the Corinthians, my faith is in the word of a credible apostle, an eyewitness that says to me, Dave Wordson, I saw the risen Christ. You can believe what I teach you because that Jesus Christ is speaking through me. And the second we die and the second you die, you can come up to me. And if you believe in reincarnation, we'll find out who was right. And I want to share with every single one of you, as you sit there today, we're all in that crisis of faith. I haven't died either as Shirley McLean, no matter what she says, about how many times she's lived in the past. She's never herself had this heart stop beating, had the brain stop functioning, and walked into the next dimension. And that's what spiritual things are all about. Every one of you, the Lord Jesus comes back first, are going to make that transition through physical death. Who are you counting on at that moment? Who do you believe tells the truth? And I want to share something with you. Truth is not topsy-turvy. Not everybody can be right. If reincarnation is right, then Paul is the biggest liar I've ever read. If Shirley McLean is right, Jesus Christ is the biggest imposter that ever lived. You say that can't be. He was a good man. Read what he wrote. You see, that's the problem. You live in a culture where everybody talks about everybody being right, but nobody reads hardly anybody. Everybody learns secondhand. Nobody really thinks carefully about what everybody is saying because this whole Casper kind of a vanilla kind of stuff, everybody's right. I want to share with you from the bottom of my heart, not everybody's right. And oh, I'm thankful for a man that would write down to the Corinthians. Corinthians, I'm right. Because that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm an apostle. Not in arrogance, not in pride. But you know why he said it out of the deepest humility? He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The apostle Paul was an apostle totally as a gift from heaven.